Does God promise that all things will work together for good? Yes, absolutely, 100%. But also, no, not slightly, not even a little bit? Confused? Great. Let's get started then. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and this is Onward in the Faith. And in this episode, I want to equip you to think biblically about what God actually means in Romans 8, 28. So, let's read the verse, let's talk about how we tend to think about it or use it in our day-to-day lives or social media walls, and then let's look at what's actually going on here so that we can better understand this wonderful truth that God gives us. So, Romans 8.28, reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. So, very familiar verse. uh, Maybe next to John 3.16 in the 90s, this might be one of the most well-known verses out there in the world in general, not just within Christianity, but all around. We know Romans 8.28. We love Romans 8.28. A lot of times when tragedy strikes, we cling to Romans 8.28. But there's a problem with how we use it. And ultimately, it comes down to holding God to a promise that he's never made, which inevitably is going to lead us to, one, disappointment, but two, missing the blessings found in a life lived in this sin-cursed world. So a lot of times when we are using Romans 8.28, we use it in a few different ways. One is almost like a a good luck charm or a magical talisman. Uh, You think of people who, uh, when when, uh, they're trying to ward off evil spirits, they'll throw salt over their shoulder. Maybe the Roman Catholics will do the the sign of the cross. You'll have different pagan religions that will have certain hand signs, maybe magical talismans that they can clutch and things like that. And they will do these things because there is something negative that is coming at them or that they fear will coming at them. And so they use this in a way to, from their perspective, to ward off evil. But ultimately, it's about self-soothing, right? It's about making themselves feel better, giving them comfort and trust that that this magic thing is going to ward off any negativity in their lives. A lot of times we'll use it as a contractual obligation, saying that, you know, God has said that that, uh, anything that negative comes my way, that he is going to use it for good because I love him. And so we use it in the same way that people in the world will say, you know, well, when one door closes, another one opens. And we use it in the exact same way, saying, I lost my job, uh, I lost a, a spouse or a family member, I have cancer, whatever it is. In the greatest of tragedies, we cling to this and say, okay, this is bad now, but God's going to do something big with it later. It's going to return to me in an even bigger way. I don't understand how. But I trust that because God has said this tragic thing is going to work out for my good, that I have some kind of good coming. And maybe a third way we use it is almost like a good luck charm. So you think of people who uh, in their barn, for example, if you lived, ever lived in the country, people will hang like a horseshoe over a door frame, And when they leave the house, they'll, you know, bap the, the horseshoe for good luck. Or they'll carry, carry around a rabbit's foot. Or they will even in today's culture, you know, we'll post positive affirmations on our, our mirrors, on our walls and things like that. We'll get tattoos of it. 
ultimately with the goal of just helping us to think positively, to uh, start the day well, to be reminded of, of good things and, and positive things in the midst of bad, negative things. But, you know, I say these things and as Christians, I think we kind of look at these more superstitious things like, you know, throwing salt or, uh, you know, believing that, you know, the universe is going to bring positive things my way or, uh, you know, posting motivational uh, phrases, you know, on your mirror or whatever. And we look at those things and we think that's really silly. You know, what, what magic, what power do those things really have? But then we do the same thing with Romans 8, 28. We will have something negative come and where, you know, a, a pagan might uh, repeat some kind of phrase over and over. They may clutch and and uh, rub a magic talisman or a lucky rabbit's foot or something like that over and over again. What do we do with Romans 8, 28? We just keep repeating, uh, you know, all good things to those who, who love God. You know, God, God's going to use us for my good. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. And we repeat it like a mantra or almost like a magical invocation to bring good our way because it says it in the Bible. Or uh, we will you know, put it on our walls, put it on, you know, we'll get tattoos, put it on our Facebook page, whatever. And we will we'll put it there and it just kind of sets in our minds that, you know, th things are going to be aces. You know, maybe, maybe today is a little rough, but, you know, over time, God is going to just work things out for my good and for my benefit. Now, the problem with this, as we're going to see in the text, is that, and, re and really in the Bible, God doesn't promise that our lives are going to be good. He doesn't promise that by the world standards that we are going to prosper, we're going to have success. God doesn't even promise us happiness. God does promise us something, and it is strongly reinforced in Romans 8.28. But a lot of times we come into it with almost a worldly mentality or a self-focused mentality. And we see the word good, right? God works things out for good. And so we apply our own understanding of what good means to us and say, I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to get a spouse. I'm going to be happy. You know, whatever, whatever, if you will, idol you set in your life is how you define good. You say, I need this to be happy. And therefore God has promised that I will get this thing that will make me happy. Now, as I said, the inevitable fallout of this is that God fails to live up to his word. I mean, how many people have you talked to or heard from that they they grew up in a Christian house, maybe they just converted to Christianity later in life, and they were doing well, they were loving God, you know, they were doing what they thought they were supposed to do, but they left the faith. And why do people leave the faith? Often because they they say they something happens in their life and their response is god how could you let this happen to me and what are they really saying god you are someone who is not supposed to let this happen to me you you failed to come through on what you said you would do i was sold a bill of goods that you couldn't deliver on and so because god is not who they thought he was they want nothing more to do with him and that is the kind of mentality that we can reinforce with Romans 8.28. Now, I know that we don't intentionally use it as a, a good luck charm or a magical ward or anything like that. I'm, I'm confident that most people who use it take it on faith and say, because God is good, because God is loving, that if he has promised that he will bring good into my life, I trust that he will bring good into my life. And that's great. We want to have that kind of faith where 
We don't understand how this circumstance can work out for the better. We don't understand how, you know, a tragic accident or a disability or a sickness or a death or, or fill in the blank on life living in this world. We don't understand how these things can work out for our good, but we can have such faith in God to say that God can do anything. God can work this out for my good at the end that I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, but I know there is one because God has said it. That is how I trust a lot of us will use Romans 8, 28 in, in our lives, on our social media pages and things like that. But if that is not what God means by this, then we are not only holding God to something he has not said, but we are missing out on something beautiful that he has said and that he has promised. So that's what I want us to just try to briefly look at. Now, when I say briefly, if you've been around here long enough, you know that anything under an hour is brief. So we will see how this goes. But I want us to just kind of briefly look at what is going on when Paul writes this in the book of Romans. Because we need to realize that, you know, sometimes, you know, if you've been around here long enough, sometimes we have to dig really deep into things. We have to look up words and cultural things to really understand what's happening. But a lot of times in God's words, the text can be explained by the context. And Romans 8.28 is one of those that we don't really need to go beyond the words that Paul wrote to this church in Rome to understand what's happening here. We can just, we're going to stay planted in Romans and just really see why did Paul say this? And this is really important because there's there's so many things in life that if we just tune in midway through, we're going to completely miss out on what's actually going on. So, for example, one of the memories I have from childhood is watching the movie The Fugitive. Now, I don't remember much about the movie The Fugitive. I remember Harrison Ford. I remember Tommy Lee Jones. And there's really, if I'm honest, only one scene that I remember, and it takes place in a storage drain. And so in it, uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford are two main characters in the, in the movie, and they're facing off. And Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones have this exchange. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Now, if you've ever seen The Fugitive, that's probably the scene that you thought of, right? If you can remember nothing about that movie, this classic line stands out to everyone. And, and we don't hear it as much now, but people would often just kind of quote this because it's such a quotable line. You know, it's a great moment. It's very tense. Uh, it's great character building for Tommy Lee Jones's character saying, I don't care that you didn't kill your wife. Now, something really neat happened as I was preparing for this video is I found that clip online and I was listening to it and I, I do my work in the kitchen. And so uh, my older two kids were walking around and out of nowhere, they just hear dad watching something saying, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. And they both just kind of laughed and said, okay, buddy, whatever, because they didn't have any context for what was happening. And so then for fun, because I knew what I was doing with this clip, I said, Hey, what do you think is going on here? You know, you just heard this. What do you, what do you think is happening in the story? And so my daughter was kind of put on the spot and she said, well, I, I guess that the guy who said he didn't kill his wife is kind of saying, you know, I, I did all these other bad things. You know, you, you know that I've, I've committed all these other crimes, but I didn't kill my wife. That's one thing you can't blame on me. And Tommy Lee Jones's character, 
him saying, I don't care, means I don't care if you didn't kill your wife. You're still guilty of all these other things. And then she said, and it, it was so perfect. It was one of those, it's like, oh, I should have brought her in front of the camera because she said something so perfect. She said, man, I didn't realize how important context was when you're hearing a quote from a movie. She said it in such a way, it almost sounded scripted because it was so perfect. And it was exactly what I was going for and asking her that. And it's exactly what I'm going for and talking about it now. If you have no other context, this classic line, a line that even people who haven't seen The Fugitive have probably heard if, if you were growing up in the 90s or early 2000s. It's a classic, well-known line. And we have that all over the place, right? Hasta la vista. I'll be back uh, from Terminator. You know, these are these are classic things that if you've never seen the movie, you've heard the thing and you maybe even have used the thing just because it's so commonly used in our culture. And that's the issue that we run into with Romans 828 is we are so familiar with this this uh, verse in Christian culture and even beyond Christian culture, that even people who don't read their Bibles, don't go to church, don't have anything to do, but they're just spiritual, but not religious, or they believe in God, but not all that other stuff. They're aware of, uh, of this verse, of this passage, and they may even use it, but they don't know what it means. And therefore they miss out on what's really going on. So I want us to, 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 Watch The Fugitive, if you will, to get an understanding of what Romans 8.28 is talking about by looking at the case that Paul has been building leading up to this. Now, strong recommendation, if you want to dig into this yourself, start at Romans 1.1 and go through it to see the bigger case that Paul has been building throughout this. Because for sake of time, for sake of quote-unquote speed by Ray's standards, we're not going to dig super deep into this. We're just going to go back a few verses just to get kind of the run-up context leading into this. But this, of course, is, is building on something that Paul has already been saying leading up to it. So read Romans. It's a great book to study, great book to read from. The context, though, that I want us to get into, uh, we're going to dial it back. So we, we're, we're talking about Romans 8.28. But I want us to dial back all the way to Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And again, a lot of missing context here, but we'll try to just to get a, a good understanding of what's going on. So in talking about how the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts, if you will, of believers, right? We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, sealing us for the day of promise. Paul says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So just quick pause there and a thing to note as we're uh, paving the ground for what Paul's talking about. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and in that we have a promise and a confidence that we are heirs with Christ, right? That we will have an inheritance in the future. And if you are keeping up with my first Peter series, we just talked about this in the second episode of it. But it says that, you know, we're going to suffer with him now, but in that suffering, we have a confidence that we will be glorified in the future. And so then he goes on, having just said, you know, we're going to suffer now, but we're looking forward to something later. For 
verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So again, Paul is saying, look, things are bad now, but it's not just bad for you. It's bad for the whole world. Even creation itself is waiting just as we are waiting for the return of the king, for Jesus to remake everything and to set everything as it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, before mankind fell, and we got ourselves into the mess that we're in right now. And then he goes on. And says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, I think we can relate to that. And even when we are you know, facing tragedy where we apply Romans 8, 28, what are we doing? We are saying things are bad now, but I am looking forward to God coming through on something because that is what Romans 8, 28 is talking about, that God has promised that in the midst of difficult things, even in the midst of good things, that God is working it out towards a good end. But we want to be careful because what we're going to do after this is we're going to define good as God does, because it's that single word that trips us up. So pay attention to what Paul's saying here. He is saying, suffering now, glory later. Not in this life, in the future, when Christ returns. Then he goes on in verse 24. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So that, again, is talking about we, we can't see this glory that's coming. We trust that it's coming based on who God is. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as we're sitting here suffering, as we're living in misery and sorrow and heartache, as we are racked with cancer and just waiting for death, God knows. And and even as we are praying to God and begging to God, the Holy Spirit also is within us. And he is praying to God, but he is praying in a way that is fully focused to God, praying when we don't know how to pray or praying when we have the wrong focus in our prayers. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in us is he is praying for the good of us. And so having launched onto that, he says, God knows the mind of the spirit, right? The, the heavenly father knows the mind of the spirit. That is what God knows. Then he says, and we know, right? So he's contrasting this. Here's what God knows, but here's what we know God knows the full picture, but here's what we know as we sit here living in suffering, remembering that the sufferings of this time are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us after this life, after this age. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
So what does this mean? Where are we at right now? We are groaning. We are suffering. We are dealing with tragedy. We are dealing with the pain of living in this life. Even if things are going well, we know that we are lacking, that we are incomplete, that we are longing for the day that we are with Christ forever in our glorified bodies, in a sinless earth for eternity. That's what we are waiting for in the varying degrees of suffering and difficulty that we experience. But even as we are suffering, even as we are praying to God and God knows the Holy Spirit within us and the Father is hearing the Holy Spirit's groaning for us, we know that in this suffering that can't compare to the glory to come, we know that in this suffering, God is working it for good to those who love him, to those who are called. Now, I warned you. The, the place that we get tripped up, and even right now where many of you may be saying, okay, I don't get it. That still sounds like God's promising we're suffering now, but we're going to have good stuff uh, a day, a week, a month from now. Let's see how God defines this good. So 828 again, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because, and here's where God's going to clarify what this good means, what this result looks like, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the good that God works out in your life? It's not a promise of when one door opens or when one door closes, another one opens. Sometimes one door closes and that door gets nailed shut. It gets caution tape put around it and it gets set on fire. And there are no more doors for you. Sometimes we will live in what the world would define as misery and suffering. And we will live until we die. And we see no earthly good from it, right? There's no redemption arc in the story, right? It's, it's not a Hollywood movie where, you know, someone was really run down on their luck, but then, you know, fortune struck and, and everything turned out for the better in the end. We don't all get the life of Job, who suffered greatly, but then was, was uh, given so much more afterwards. Sometimes we suffer, and sometimes we die. Sometimes we lose the great job and never recover from it. Sometimes a parent or a child or a friend dies, and we don't understand why, and we live the rest of our life until we breathe our last breath, still saying, God, I don't get what you were doing with this. Why, God, did you do it? And we may never get the answer to that because that's not the good that God is promising us. God's not promising us that things are going, that, that we are seeing, you know, something negative now that's going to just pay off bigger later on. It's not like when some, when a doctor has to reset a bone and there's pain in the moment but in the end, it works out much better for the patient. That's not what God's promising here. God says that God works out everything for good because God is working everything out with one purpose in mind. And Romans 8, 29 very clearly tells us what that purpose is. The purpose is that we would become conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is doing in everything in the world. Whenever we suffer heartache, God is using it to build us up to become more like his son. 
When a friend is suffering, God is building them up and even sometimes often building us up to become more like Jesus Christ. That is God's desire in our life. God doesn't need us happy. God doesn't need us wealthy. He doesn't need us healthy. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to have a good life as the world defines it. But what does God's word command? That we grow, that we submit, that we serve, that we live our lives fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And so when these things come in our lives, what is God doing? Helping us to obey, knowing that on our own, we will just sit and be content and never want to grow. Now, for some of you out there, maybe God can grow you through really good circumstances. You can get a really well-paying job and and just fully surrender it to God and just glorify him even more through this well-paying job. But for a lot of people, me included, we have to experience suffering. We have to be unable to rely on ourselves. We have to be confronted with the reality that life isn't sunshine, rainbows, and, and bubblegum flavored lollipops. Life is hard. Life is pain. We are nothing. We have zero control over our circumstances. We are one person texting while driving away from being unable to walk ever again. We are one CEO's plan away from being downsized and made redundant. We have no control over our lives. Whatever good we think we do, however accomplished we think we are, is purely a gift from God. And when we become overly reliant on that, or even if we aren't, but God is still desiring to grow us, we may suffer things. We may be able to say with Paul, I, I am, the, the sufferings of these present times are nothing compared to the glory to come. God is constantly growing us. Even the strongest, most mature Christian that you know or that has ever existed outside of Jesus Christ, every sin-born human cannot reach a level of perfection. God is constantly growing us because we all constantly need to be grown. We are, we are meant to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are meant to be molded and shaped to reflect who Jesus is. Not to be kind of like him, but in his obedience, in his submission to God, we are meant to live like him. And that's how we will live, right? In the glory to come, in the sinless eternity, we're going to be like Christ, not as God in Trinity, but in his obedience, in his love for God. That is who we are meant to be. That is what God desires most for our lives. And so everything that happens in our lives, the, the pain that I suffer, right? The, the, the loss that I experience in my life. God's not saying it's rough now, but I've got something better planned. God's not saying, hey, wait and see what I do for you. Instead, through Romans 8, 28, I can have confidence and you can have confidence. That God's not saying, wait to see what I do for you, but wait to see what I do to you. God will grow his people. God will not let us sit and just wallow in the muck, in the mire, and being immature Christians all our lives. If you truly have the Holy Spirit in you, as, as Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8, 
those who have the Spirit in them are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, some slowly, some quickly, and all of us at different intensities throughout our lives. But this is what we cling to when we think about Romans 8.28, that everything in our life is shaping us, some shaping us positively, right? Some things, you know, God is answering prayer. We are surrounded by good Christian fellowship. You know, we're reading God's word and we're getting inspired and encouraged and we're learning from it. God is using that to grow us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. But also those areas where God is breaking us, where he is breaking our pride, where he is allowing us to have a hard marriage, to have kids who are disobedient, to experience loss and suffering and pain. For those who are just counting the days or the weeks, knowing that they have a terminal illness, that without the radical and miraculous intervention of God, they have no hope of seeing 2025. Even in those people, and it's it's hard to say, and I don't say this callously, I don't say this to be dismissive, but even in those people, God is working out those those negative things, those things that are purely a result of living in a sin-cursed world, God is working that out for the spiritual maturity of his people, for what we call their sanctification. He is using it to grow you, and he's using it to grow those around you. You may not see it. You may not even realize that God has grown you through the suffering that you've experienced. You may still be sitting around saying, God, why did I lose my child? Why have I you know, struggled to get a job after losing that one? Why did you allow me to become disabled or you know, to have these you know, emotional struggles that I have? Whatever it is. And you may not even realize that God has worked that for good so much already without you even recognizing it. Whether in your life and how you have learned dependence on God, whether in your life in God protecting you from pursuing worldliness even more and instead rooting you in himself and in his son, and even in the life of those around you and how people have seen you respond to those things, God is working it out for good, for the explicit purpose of growing his people to be more like Jesus Christ. And, and like Paul, we can have confidence in that because it is God who is in control of it. And if you continue reading Romans 8, uh, ch- chapter 8 through the end, we see that this God who is working things for our good is the same God who has uh, called us according to his purpose. He foreknew us, which he, he loved us before time began. He predestined us. He, he uh, called us. He's considered us justified, and he's considered us glorified. It says that he glorified his people, but we haven't experienced glory yet. But that's what's amazing about God, is that he has already determined that it will be so. He has determined that our eternity is secure, that we will be glorified. We haven't experienced it yet, but as far as God's concerned, he has decreed it, and so it it is. Right, The God who exists outside of time already knows that we're glorified. We're just waiting for it. And so as we wait for it, what does Romans 8.18 say? For I consider, and as Christians, I think we can safely read that and say, for we consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And that glory is assured. It's guaranteed. It's promised. And if we are confident that we will be glorified, then as we live and suffer in this life, as we struggle, as we experience you know, both small and great losses and sufferings, as we experience the good life, knowing that it's not going to last forever, where's our hope? Where's our confidence? It can be in Romans 8, 28. We can hang that on our walls. We can have that on our coffee cups or, or blazoned on our Bible case or whatever. Romans 8.28 is a fantastic promise to God's people. We can have full rest and assurance that in whatever comes, God is working it out. But we want to have that definition of good in line with what God says. And your good is not wealth. Your good is not recovering from cancer. Your good is not finding full relief from the grief that you experience at losing someone. Your good is is to say, despite these sufferings in this present time, I will grow closer to Jesus Christ. I will become more like him and less like the enemy of God that I was before he saved me. That is the good that God is always working. And as his followers, that is the good that we want to make sure we desire for ourselves and for those around us. We are a testimony to those around us in how we suffer, especially and everything we do, we're a testimony. But anyone can say, oh yeah, hashtag blessed when, when things are going great. But when tragedy strikes, when anyone else without hope in an eternal God and a glor in the glory to come, when someone without those things would experience these things and feel sorrow, doubt, and anger, we can glorify our Father. We can grow to be more like Jesus Christ by understanding it through God's eyes not the world's eyes. We can have that eternal perspective, not just a perspective that looks in the here and now and say, the best thing that I can have in this life is to not suffer. That's not what God wants for you. God isn't here to beat you up. You know, don't, don't misunderstand that and mishear that. But Romans 8 makes it very clear. We are going to live in a world that is broken. The question is not, what is God going to do for me when he takes something, but instead, I can't wait to see what God is going to do to me and through me as I experience this loss, as I experience this suffering purely to the glory of Jesus Christ. So I hope that look at Romans 8.28 has been helpful. I hope that uh, you aren't going and tossing away all of your Christian bookstore paraphernalia that you've gotten with that verse on it over the years. I hope that you can see the beauty and the hope that is just embedded in this passage, not just Romans 8.28, but th that whole passage that we looked at today. So if you found it useful, uh, share it with others, meditate on it, dwell on it. If you would like to support the Onward in the Faith ministry, you can click the links down in the show notes to find out how to do either a one-time donation or pledge your monthly support. And Lord willing, I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith 
towards maturity in Christ. 